following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. How many of you could name all four presidents on Mount Rushmore? You don't have to shout them out, but just if you're confident you could do it, hand in the air. Okay, I I see a few hands. (laughs) Uh, So we we have George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, and Abe Lincoln, right? The four presidents on Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore is interesting because it takes, you know, all of, the, all of American history up to that point and, and tries to pick the, the top four presidents that we'd had. And, um, you know, you can read about the artist's decision to choose those presidents, and that's kind of an interesting thing to do. But it's also, Mount Rushmore can be a fun game to play about any topic. Have you ever done this with your friends? Like, if we were going to name, uh, if we were going to put four Pro basketball players on, on the basketball Mount Rushmore, who would it be? It would be Michael Jordan, Bill Russell, um, Bird and Magic. When LeBron gets on there, who has to get off? That's, the, that's like the big, big debate. If you were going to do it for, say, the Buffalo Bills, you'd have, uh, let's see, Scott Norwood and... I'm actually not sure who else would go on there, but... What about for Rochester figures, great figures from Rochester's history? Who would we start with? Susie B. or Freddie D. I, I don't. I, it really drives me up a wall when people do that. Like <laughs> Susan B. Anthony, Frederick Douglass, great figures. Um, George Eastman. Huh? Who would be the fourth one? Maurice Silver. Oh. <laughs> it always comes back to baseball, doesn't it? We have a lot of medical people in the in the room, and I'm going to be out of my depth here. But you know, who famous medical scientists? Marie Curie, maybe Louis Pasteur. Who else? Yes, right, the soft vaccine, that's great. I knew that one. <laughs> so it's a fun game to play, and, you know, over drink some time, do this with your friends, uh, pick a topic and try to come up who, with who the Mount Rushmore would be. But if we were doing Mount Rushmore for characters from the Old Testament, I think the first one would be easy, right? It would be Moses. And then right up there with Moses would be Elijah. How many of you would have come up with Elijah as the second one? How many real Bible nerds do we have in the room? Yeah. Elijah is definitely up there. And as a matter of fact, there's a story in the Gospels, in the New Testament, in the Christian stories, um, where there's kind of like a, a live-action Mount Rushmore <laughs> with Jesus up on a mountain. And who appears there with him? Moses and Elijah. It's like these are the ones. I guess if you were going to do this, it probably should be Mount Sinai, right, if you were going to carve it into a mountain. But. <laughs> Oh, Bible nerds. Um, So Elijah is is going to be the subject of uh, the sermon today. And I believe that the story that uh, that we read in the lectionary passage um, gives us uh, something really powerful and inspiring. And I think this story, I hope anyway, I really do think, it will be powerful and inspiring for you, whether you think you are the like a uh, top-tier Christian who's about to retire and get put on the Mount Rushmore of, of Christians of all time, or whether... <laughs> show of hands, how many? No. <laughs> um, or whether you're barely hanging on by a thread. Maybe you're not even sure why you're here today. Maybe you aren't clear on how much longer you're going to keep trying. I hope and I think that this passage can be inspiring to everybody on either end and everybody in between. And this, I believe, is the, one of the great powers of Scripture, which is that God can speak to us no matter 
who we are, no matter where we are in our own stories, the stories of God's people as contained in Scripture can be powerful to us. And so can I ask you to take a moment to open your hearts and your minds to what God might be ready to show you wherever you might put yourself on that continuum. Ask God to, and allow God to open the door to your heart and your mind just a little bit wider. Take maybe 20 seconds of silence and do that. So I want to give you some background on Elijah's story before we get to the story that is about Elijah in the reading for today. Because in order to get to the power of what happened in today's passage, which we get from the lectionary, I think you really need to know what happened to him before that. So Elijah, if you don't know, was a prophet of Israel, perhaps one of the greatest prophets. And by the way, do you know what a prophet in the Bible is? It's, It's not really some Nostradamus kind of figure who cryptically predicts the future in their writings. Although there is a little bit of that that you can get in the prophetic writings. But the main job of the prophets in the Old Testament, and and hopefully we still have some prophets in our midst today, was to call people to the ways of God. Often quite dramatically, to call people to the ways of God. And interestingly, the audience for the prophets, is almost always the people who should already know the message that they're delivering. Yes, the prophets of Israel have kind of this um, weirdo with a megaphone aspect to them. Right? I was just at a Red Wings game recently, so this is fresh in my mind. But the thing with the prophets is that they're not shouting at the people outside the religious community calling them in. They're shouting at the people inside the religious community who should already know what they're shouting at them. So it's not just calling people to the ways of God. It's calling the people of God. And it's not just calling them. It's calling them back to the ways of God. And even more specifically, the message of the prophets is most often delivered to the leaders of the people, the kings and rulers, the priests, the religious leaders, who at times lead God's people astray. And there's almost always an element in the prophet's uh, writings and um, orations of you should know better, and if you don't change your ways, you are going to be in trouble. And what we do as religious people very often is we take that language of impending judgment and we turn it away from our own communities and, and uh, kind of attack other people with it, when what we should be doing is um, listening to it as if it were addressed to us, because it is. Now, it turns out that um, powerful people who have set up systems and even arranged entire governments based on the pretense of religious belief, but who are not really following God because there's no money in it or no prestige in it or no way to advance their power in it, it turns out that those people don't actually like to be told that they need to repent and change their ways or else God is going to bring about their destruction. They don't like it and their followers don't like it either. And so Elijah's ministry as a prophet takes place during a time when the nation of Israel is heading in all the wrong directions for a variety of reasons. The Israelites have turned to idolatry and to the worship of pagan gods 
It's due in large part to their leadership, their corrupt king, King Ahab, and the wicked queen, his wife, whose name is Jezebel. And if you're wondering, yes, these two people in the Bible, these two characters in the Bible, are the reason why the names Ahab and Jezebel are attached to all kinds of other literary and pop culture references because they were such bad people. So Ahab and Jezebel actually consider Elijah, who would come to be known as one of the greatest prophets of Israel, as their enemy because he keeps calling them to account, saying you're leading the people astray and you're dooming us all to destruction, including yourselves. You know, he's doing his prophet thing. And so the most famous story about Elijah, the one that I heard in Sunday school a lot growing up, and maybe some of you did too if you went to Sunday school as a kid, is an occasion when he gets into a standoff with the prophets of Baal. Now, Baal is one of these pagan gods. It's the god of the Canaanites. And if you know the story of the Israelites, the Israelites are always at odds with the Canaanites. And Yahweh is the true god, the one true god of Israel. And Baal and Asherah and some of those other gods are the gods of the the pagans, the Canaanites. And Jezebel, who uh, marries kind of into this Israelite community by marrying Ahab, um, brings with her all these other gods and kind of insists that the people of God, the people of Yahweh, start worshiping Baal. And so uh, Elijah gets into this standoff, this prophet battle out on the plains with the prophets of Baal. He's all by himself, and there's 450 of them. And he challenges them to a sacrifice off. Have you, <laughs> have you ever had a sacrifice off? <laughs> I haven't either. So, uh, he says, okay, Prophets of Baal, set up an altar over here, put a, put a bull on it, but don't light the fire. I, the one prophet standing of Israel, will make an altar over here and put a bull on it, but I won't light the fire. And then we will each pray to our gods, and whichever god lights the altar up first is the one true God. And he says, you guys go first, because he knows, he knows what's going to happen, which is nothing. Nothing happens. The altar stands there, the wood's there, the bull is there. Nothing. And they start, you know, praying and chanting and crying out and cutting themselves with knives. And and Elijah actually starts taunting them. He actually says to them, maybe your God's in the bathroom. (laughs) Maybe he's asleep. And then he prays to God and God sends this fire. But first he says, no, no, let's let's increase the degree of difficulty here. We're going to like douse the whole thing with water, barrel after barrel of water. We're going to dig a trench all the way around it, fill the trench with water. And God sends down this fire that consumes the animal, consumes the altar, wicks away all the water in the trenches to leave no doubt who is the one true God. And then Elijah kills the 450 prophets of Baal. Which... (laughs) It's not only a bloody detail, um, but also ends up being the source of his biggest trouble yet with Ahab and Jezebel. By the way, in in 1 Kings uh, 18, the chapter before we're going to look at where this story is told, there's no indication that I can find that God tells him to do that. He just does it. So Jezebel wants his head. And he gets terrified and flees the country, which tells you a little bit about Jezebel, doesn't it? He just called down fire from God in heaven, consuming this thing, the most dramatic thing anybody had ever seen, and then takes on 450 prophets of Baal 
And Jezebel says, I'm going to do the same thing to you by this time tomorrow. And he's like, whoa, I'm out of here. (laughs) And he takes off. He flees. So Elijah is on the run. And here at long last, we come to the point in the story where today's lectionary reading picks up. And so if you'd like to turn in, one of your, one of, in your Bible or one of our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19, that's where the story is going to be told. It's on page 284 in these red Bibles. And remember, all of that background that I gave you from the chapters that precede this one, that's important for us, remember, to understand the significance that I'm finding in today's story. So I want you to keep in mind as we're reading it the absolutely incredible demonstration of God's blessing and power that Elijah had just experienced. And then we're going to look at this passage and I'm going to give you three lessons that I I think we can take from this. So here it is. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying... So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like the one of them, like one, like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. By the way, this is not the point of my sermon today. But did you notice that the the objection here is not that Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, had overpowered Baal, the false god of the Canaanites? The objection is with the murder. Who knows what would have happened if it had just stood with God's demonstration of God's power? rather than Elijah taking matters into his own hands. But that's a, as I am fond of saying, that's a sermon for another day. Verse 4, uh, verse 3. Then he was afraid, he got up and fled for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights, to Horeb, the mount of God. And at that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Now I want to pause here. We have a few more verses that I want to look at. That's actually the end of the lectionary reading, but I wanted to go a little bit farther into the text today. But I want to stop right there and make some observations because I think this part of the story might speak to a certain subset of our population more deeply. And that's for those of you who feel that you are at the end of your rope. You might feel completely out of energy, whether it's for your job or for your family or for your faith. You may feel that you have no will to go on. You may actually have even wished to die. The message of reassurance from this text is this. Lesson number one. You are not alone. Not only are you not alone because you have a community of people around you who loves you. And if we don't say it often enough, we do. And who wants to support you. And if we don't show it often enough, we'll do better. Not only because of that, but because you have one of the Mount Rushmore 
prophets of Israel having the exact same experience. He's, he's terrified. He's confused. Maybe he's wrestling with the guilt of the impossibly awful thing that he's done. He goes into the wilderness and lays down under a tree and says, God, I'm going to go to sleep. Please don't ever wake me up. And I know that some of you have said that to God. You are not alone. And I actually love the fact that the angel wakes him up and gives him cake. (laughs) First of all, I love that fact. But I love the fact that he goes back to sleep. Because if he only took one reminder, that would be too high a bar for me sometimes. He goes right back to sleep. Thanks for the cake, God. I'm going to go back to sleep now. Seriously, please don't wake me up. Sometimes it, takes us, sometimes it takes more than one miracle to get us where we need to be. Especially in times of massive trauma or distress. Sometimes the first miracle is just staying alive. Sometimes the first miracle is just getting up out of bed in the morning. And it takes a second miracle for us to get moving and, and, and go on up to the mountaintop. And maybe for you or for me, it could take a third or a fourth or a fiftieth miracle to get where, where you actually need to be to experience God in a new way. And here's the other thing. God's provision and the strength that it provides are often given so that we can accomplish a task that uh, we didn't even want to do. Did you notice, I, I had to chuckle at this, the angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. I would have been like, journey? <laughs> what, what journey are we talking about? Well, he had work to do. He had a place to go and, and be. And God's provision was going to allow him to get there, even though he probably didn't want to go. So lesson number one, you are not alone. If you're out there in the wilderness, lying under the tree, kind of wishing that you might not wake up. So let's move on and see what happens. After he gets up the second time and goes in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights, must have been really good cake, to Horeb, the Mount of God, which is also sometimes called Sinai. And at that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, 
he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites, and have, fors- have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He's like sort of a name, rank, and serial number type. He has one answer to this question. He's going to give it every time it's asked, apparently. And then the Lord said to him, Go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And, and, and from there it goes on, and the Lord gives him specific instructions and, and for the continuation of his ministry, for what next, for what's, what's supposed to come next. But let's talk about this earth, wind, and fire a moment. What would any good Jew think if he was standing on Mount Horeb, a.k.a. Mount Sinai, and there was an earthquake and fire and rushing wind? You may not be as much of a Bible nerd as Elijah most certainly was, but that could not possibly have evoked anything other than Moses being on that same mountain, having that same experience of God's presence, and what happened then was that Moses received the law. Now, for you and me, like, getting law would be like, oh, great, more rules. That's just what I want in my life. But for the people of God, the, the law is, it just means like God's words, everything God has to say, all of the information and words that are going to shape our life together were given to Moses right there on the mountain where Elijah was. In the same kind of natural disaster sort of way that Elijah was experiencing. And yet Elijah was just barely able to get up and go. And he'd been take, it had taken him 40 days from that moment of depression to get to where he was here. Here is the second lesson for us. Don't compare your worst day to someone else's best day. I know that's kind of a thing that we say sometimes. That's sort of a cliche almost, but it's so true. And it's not just true for Instagram, right? It's true for the spiritual life as well. So I posted a picture on Instagram last night. It got a lot of likes. (laughs) It was a picture of my family. We we had dinner in the backyard, and and they were all, like, clean. happy. (laughs) The light was perfect. The oppressive heat had gone away. I took a picture and posted it as if to say, this is what my life is like. (laughs) I don't know if you follow me on Instagram, but you you probably noticed that I don't post when it's been the 650th day without seeing the sun in Rochester, and I'm in a terrible mood, and I'm trudging up and down through four and a half feet of snow, and I'm mad at the kids and mad at my wife and they don't want anything to do with me for good reason. I'm not like, oh, I'm going to put this on Instagram so all my friends can see what my life is like. No, that's not what you do. Instagram is just for the the happy times. But in all seriousness, for Elijah to compare that experience of, of being completely lost and confused... With the experience that he knew knew Moses had had in one of the most important moments in the entire history of God's people would have been great folly. Where else have we heard fire recently, by the way? Well, 
41 days ago, Elijah had had this experience with God where God sent down fire and burned up the altar. Remember that story? So part two of lesson two is don't compare your worst day to your own best day. See, the lesson, in short, is don't compare. Comparison is the thief of joy. You know who said that? The third one on Mount Rushmore. Teddy Roosevelt said that. Comparison is the thief of joy. And comparison is death in spiritual life. Because if you are comparing yourself to what your neighbor is experiencing, first of all, you're probably not perceiving what your neighbor is actually experiencing. So that's not going to help you. But let's say it was true. It's just going to cause you to um, wish that you were having a different experience than what the one that you're having right now, which, which apparently is the one that, that you actually can meet God in. Because, spoiler alert, the only story that will work to connect you to God is your own. But don't also compare yourself to your own past. I've had some pretty incredible experiences with God. And then, as I said last week, the memories can fade. And if I'm not experiencing God in the same way today that I was two or five or ten years ago, that's not because there's a problem with me, it's because that's what life does. And I believe God is present with us at all of those times. And so comparing um, my present with my past isn't any better than comparing my present with someone else's present. Did you notice also that the places where God was not were much louder than the place where God apparently was? Rushing wind that splits mountains, God was not in the wind. Great earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. Fire, but God was not in the fire. Which, once again, God was in the fire (laughs) before, in the burning bush. Like, all these other things are probably like, I'm so confused. God is not here. By the way, Elijah is still huddled in the cave. He never did actually come out the way God told him to. And what comes after all of those things, depending on your translation, might be a still, small voice. Have you ever heard that phrase? comes from this passage in the King James Version. It might be like a gentle breeze. Or what the NRSV says, which I think is actually kind of the most scathing and cold, is the sound of sheer silence. A lot of us think we want silence, especially maybe parents or... um, but when you experience sheer silence for, for any length of time, that's in- incredibly disconcerting. Pretty soon you're like, I would take any noise right now. And yet that seems to be where God is finally able to get through to Elijah. Sometimes when you hear nothing, God is there. Sometimes when you feel nothing, God is there. Here's the third lesson. Sometimes when God seems most absent, God is still there. Sometimes the absence 
is the only way that God will get through to us. When everything seems to be going well, do you pray more or less? When things start to turn south, do you pray more or less? When you start to feel really disconnected from God, in that last moment before you give up and let go, is that your most desperate and most honest and most heartfelt prayer? It is for me. That's where God is. That's an incredibly difficult lesson to learn. If you haven't experienced it yourself, you're having trouble believing that it's true. But when you do learn it, that becomes the moment when you can actually sing that song, your praise will ever be on my lips. Meaning, whatever's happening in my life, I will praise you. So remember, you are not alone. Remember, don't compare. And remember that when God seems absent, God is there. I want to conclude with reading to you again the lectionary psalm, which I read at the call to worship this morning. I think this is actually one of the uh, scriptural sources for the people who wrote that song ever be. And may we make it our prayer. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Look to Him and be radiant so your faces shall never be ashamed. This poor soul cried and was heard by the Lord and was saved from every trouble. The angel of the Lord and camps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. And for those of us who have experienced God through his son Jesus Christ, we take refuge in that experience, in that knowledge, in that revelation of who God is. And we taste and see that the Lord is good every week when we come to communion. Even when I give a sermon that only gets around to Jesus at the very, very end, it always gets there, the table proclaims what I never could because you can touch it and smell it and taste it. You can take it into your own body. And so I invite you, if you are following Jesus, if you are seeking to know God through Him, come and receive the body and blood of the Savior. Take a piece of the bread. Remember Christ's body, which is broken for you and for me. You are not alone. Dip it in the cup, remembering Christ's blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins, no matter what you have done. You can eat it right at the table. Look to your left, look to your right. Recognize that you are in communion with everybody in this room. 
with everybody who's ever celebrated this sacrament together, with the entire witnessing church for its whole history, with Moses and Elijah, the tie that binds is here. We'll have a member of the prayer team who'd be happy to pray with you as well if you'd like to receive prayer. The band will come back up. We'll sing another song or two together. I invite you to come to the Lord's table and receive the grace that's on offer here. And may his praise ever be on our lips. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.